the American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. A week ago, Netflix released an original series, The Chair, starring Sandra Oh and created by Amanda Peet and Annie Julia Wyman. The show tracks the personal and professional life of Oh's character, Ji Yoon Kim, during her first semester as chair of the English department at fictional Pembroke University. The show has already been dubbed a hit by Netflix and has certainly generated conversation on hashtag academic Twitter and amongst the professoriate it claims to represent. We'll be dedicating the next few episodes to conversations not only about the show itself, but about the profession of literary studies and the higher education system in which it is embedded. My guest for this episode, Karen Tongson, wrote one of the first reviews of The Chair for Slate. In its promotional materials, the chair describes Ji Yoon Kim as the first woman of color to chair the department. If you Google that phrase, you'll also get links to stories about Dr. Tongson, who is a groundbreaking English faculty member at University of Southern California, as well as chair of the Department of Gender and Sexuality Studies. She's the author, most recently, of Why Karen Carpenter Matters, and is working on a book about what she calls norm porn, a genre of television which captures and suppresses queerness. To learn more about Professor Tongson, including links to her vast archive of writing and public scholarship, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash the chair. One of the things I noticed in both the Slate review and the Pop Culture Happy Hour interview is that you were being asked primarily to address the chair from the position of a person the show was claiming to represent. A department chair, an academic, a woman of color, a breaker of glass ceilings. But you're, you're also a media scholar and specifically a theorist of TV genre. And the chair is self-consciously a dramedy, and the dramedy is a genre which you've placed at the center of what you call uh, norm porn. So I feel like the question I wanted to start with is, is the chair norm porn? And if not, how does it escape the dramatic conventions that usually result in norm porn? So I would actually argue and I've thought about this a lot, is that the chair isn't norm porn, in part because structurally it chooses a Mm 30-minute sitcom format, whereas the shows that I talk about or the shows that I I gather together under the rubric of norm porn are really much more sentimental realist dramas that occupy that hour length, uh, anywhere from 40 minutes up prestige framework. And the reason that distinction is important is that the chair flirts with sentimentality. It flirts with those radiant, soaring, oh, captain, my captain type moments, up to and including citations of Dickinson and Audre Lorde, the recitation of lines of literature from the top of one's head that one sees as a kind of you know, fetish and that, that links us to some spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings to do the thing that I just made fun of. But I think that the chair tries to strike a note that's far more comedic, that's far broader 
than anything that norm porn does. Norm porn is supposed to be real. It's sentimentally real, but it's supposed to be something that touches upon our experience in a way that's relatable. And there's something I think that the chair relies on that's fundamentally alienating about this arcane world. Uh, and, and one that seems to be out of time in many respects. And that seems to be separated from our daily worlds, right? Um, while, while trying to draw some links between this kind of mysterious, silly, absurd, farcical object and things that do happen in real life, like love, family, etc. That makes a lot of sense to me, especially that, that last part about the alienation. And that's the thing that I've been thinking about probably the most since watching it is the question of, is this for anybody outside of the academy? Is this for anybody outside of English departments? Oh, yeah, that's a big question. That's a great question, because I do think that people are forgetting this is so English department specific. It really does hone in on a specific segment of the academy and doesn't attempt, I think to its credit, doesn't attempt to claim that English departments are representative of the whole academy. For me, one of the interesting things about that is our English faculty, English majors, people with some sort of association to what is being represented, are they enough to justify the show? And the early returns seem to be kind of yes the show did very well in its you know first week on the platform at least according to Netflix which is all we can go on we are being narrow casted we are being niche casted here the show for me has to be read through that lens of micro targeting and that started a long time ago right it started in May when they first dropped the show and they were clearly targeting an audience of faculty, students, uh, people associated with academia and people associated specifically with humanities academia. Yes. And they were sharing screeners, you know, they were sharing screeners with press, but the screeners that were starting to circulate were being distributed through largely humanities or media studies oriented departments or specifically, and this is where I want to address your point to Asian American women I know in the academy. Interesting as well as beyond the academy. But I do want to say that the Sandra O of it all is the Mm -hmm. thing that busts open the the narrow casting of the situation, right? right? Everybody else is kind of a niche figure or person, but I think that the, the sort of aim at popularity or ubiquity in the media sphere has to do with O's star text in this. Yeah. The other thing that I would say also is that the people for whom the show seems resonant who are beyond academia or outside of it and the people who've spoken to it, like Inku Kang uh, in the Washington post are Asian American women mm-hmm. and depictions of a professional Asian American woman at work and in her home life in a non-conventional representation of Asian American femininity, unmarried with an adoptive kid, but yet still living with an elder and being expected to Mm -hmm. adhere to or at least address criticisms from within her community about how she lives. So that's a dimension of the show that every pedantic academic who just sort of slams on its verisimilitude is just unwilling to consider and for me perpetuates the blindness humanities scholars have 
English scholars have, literary scholars have, to questions of race, context, and material condition. So, so I'll just put that down right there. Yeah, no, it's, I, it's an excellent point. And certainly, I, I utterly agree. Sandra O oh brings star power. There is another niche audience that's fans of Sandra O, oh, right? And that's a, that's a probably much larger audience than Humanities Academia. Yeah, people who love Grey's Anatomy, you know, people who love Killing Eve, right? For all the decades that she's served as a different kind of Asian woman on TV. Grace was much more like she's a doctor, right? She's inhabiting a profession that's much more ubiquitously acknowledged and stereotypically attached to Asian American femininity in the US. So honestly, the thing that was most frustrating to me is how especially uh, senior white men scholars were so and and maybe junior as well, uh, especially on the social media platforms, especially on Twitter, we're, we're denigrating the verisimilitude of the show without acknowledging that the show is not about them, literally. It is about G and Kim. Yeah. One of the ways the show signals this, I mean, there are numerous, of course, but the daughter is is given a really wonderful part, Does a, has a great performance, and delivers a lot of the really powerful and potent dialogue throughout the show, right? Her relationship both with Ji Yoon and then later with Bill allows her to be a kind of conduit for us to, to sort of recognize the flaws, but also the humanity of at least those two characters. She's so apart from the campus and doesn't understand what her mom is so worried about that I think it does allow us to get outside of the exclusivity of the university, the insularity of the university, and see how sort of somewhat ridiculous these people look from the outside, Ji-Yoon included at times, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you brought up what I would agree, both in the critical responses and the sort of social media reception, there is this split, not only in terms of praising and panning the show, but as you know, more interestingly, in terms of what they expect from the show, a lot of viewers who identify as academics themselves want the show to be a, like a faithful rendering of their life. And of course, it's always going to fall short on those terms. But the fact that they have that expectation, I think, is interesting. And I think it speaks to the fact that Netflix and the show's producers set up that expectation, right? They they sort of said from the start, this is going to be a show for you, academia. And so a lot of us went into it, allowing ourselves to be seduced by that. But the other, I think, more interesting vein of criticism says, let's take for granted that this is a fictionalized, sensationalized rendering of university life. What problems has the show chosen to put at the center of that representation? And in your review, you conclude by applauding the show for acknowledging that universities are deeply entrenched, culturally conservative institutions, which contradicts the caricature of them as havens of radicalism, But you also note the show builds its conflict around a pretty tepid cancel culture controversy and a woke student mob, almost like a kind of Greek chorus who wants Bill's uh, head on the stake. And one of the things you said in this later interview was that students are usually the only members of the campus community who Hollywood grants any agency. 
So I wanted to ask to sort of sort of flesh out that thinking about how students operate in this show. Do we need to accept the flattening of the student characters because the woke mob as foil gives us this nuanced rendering of academic politics at both a departmental and college level? I think that's where format really mm-hmm. overdetermines the the rendering of the undergraduates in the show. Right. When you're given only 30 minutes and when you have only a small number of episodes, like a small batch of episodes to work with six total. Right. So that's like a long movie, basically an extra long movie. But, you know, yeah, um, uh, but but not quite, you know, what you imagine as a series, because typical sitcom 30 minute network seasons run at least with 13 episodes, usually, and back in its heyday, up to like 24 or more. This is where the, 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 you know, cultural studies and media studies scholar in me also wants to kind of ask my colleagues who are primarily literary scholars and other scholars of representation to just pause and think about the conditions and modes of production here and why, why that kind of flattening happens and what the forces are, the industry forces are that predict focus on this particular corner versus another, this constituency over another. That said, what you rightly characterized is my point about the fact that most shows set in college are very much about the development of the collegiate mind, the growth of that individual, the kind of sociability and social relations that happen between college students from it's a different world to grownish to even dear white people, which people have held up as a much better farce about academia in many respects. It's still largely student-centered and about the intricate, rich inner lives of the students who are negotiating some of the same issues, for example, in Dear White People, as they are on the chair. But the, the faculty then, in most of those shows, end up being ornamental, Mm-hmm. and instrumental and in themselves cartoonish. So this is probably an overcorrection in the other direction. Um, it is not probably it is. It's an overcorrection in the other direction to focus on the inner lives of faculty members. But there's probably a slightly subtler way of being able to handle the student body with a little more nuance than, than just making them the kind of cancel culture mob or chorus or what have you. And the fact that there's only one graduate student in it and and not gradations, if they are going to focus on the hierarchies of academia and the kind of upper chains of hierarchy in academia, then the function that graduate students serve and the encounters that they have with faculty in very complicated ways would add some nuance to the situation of the comedy. I agree with that. It, it, it strikes me that one of the rewards, the payoffs we have at the end of the show is that Leela gets this recommendation from Bill, right? That she, he's, he's made her life miserable and has largely shown no awareness of the fact that he was making her life miserable. But then we get this uh, sort of signal in the final scenes that he's aware and he's going to work on her behalf. He's going to sort of pay it back to some degree. And I, I did kind of feel like the show didn't quite earn that, right? In part mm-hmm. because Leela's character is is also pretty, you know, 
pretty flat and isn't put within the, the sort of larger structures so that we understand her position, her precarity, the community that she's a part of, where she fits. We get, we get some of that, but maybe not as much as I, I would like. And it, it brings me to one of the questions that, that most intrigued me. Right, I, I actually give the show a very high grade for verisimilitude. But the one thing that consistently tripped me up was trying to figure out what kind of institution it is. In contrast to community, which you allude to in your review, which to a degree sort of crystallizes the discrepancies between types of higher education institutions, the chair opts to go for a kind of Hollywood favorite, uh, the kind of everyman university. A lot of critics have presumed it's based on Harvard, I think mainly because one of the writers, Julia Wyman, went there. And one of the consultants also. One of the academic consultants is also a Harvard professor. And David Duchovny refers to it as a second tier Ivy League. But what we see of the student body suggests something more like UC Irvine, where Benioff got his uh, MFA, uh, a place where whites are a third or fourth largest racial demographic. In the size of the department, there's only 11 voting members of the faculty. It's more like a liberal arts college, but they have graduate students or at least one graduate student. And the exteriors were shot at two small colleges in Pennsylvania, uh, Chatham and Washington and Jefferson, both of which are a fraction of the size and stature of any ivy. And those are all the kinds of places where the central conflict over declining enrollments and forced retirements make a lot more sense maybe than at Ivy League schools. But faculty don't very often leave such institutions to take endowed positions at Yale, as as Yaz is planning to do. And so I bring this up firstly because I do think it's a popular myth that all colleges and all departments function basically the same and operate under similar constraints. And I think that myth persists even within academia. Indeed, like I, I, I was deluded by it as a student. And I think some of the negative critical responses to the show from within ac- academia are based upon people projecting the peculiarities of their own institutions onto the whole profession. But most importantly, I think presumptions viewers make about the institution lead to presumptions viewers make about the students and about that conflict, that cancel culture controversy at the center. The temptation is to sympathize with the students very differently if they are at an Ivy League school, as opposed to if they're at a majority minority first generation serving teaching institution. And it's probably true of the way we sympathize with the faculty as well. And so I was hoping you would talk a little bit about like sort of this, what is Pembroke, right? <laughs> and how how do we interpret the show based upon what we project onto Pembroke or what signals the creators actually make about the kind of place that Pembroke is? A running joke I've made is that Pembroke is Dartmouth. Not that I have, I'd say that's the only place that would have snow on the ground in like right. October or what have you. And it's slightly smaller, even though demographically, I'm not sure what the student demographic is there. I would speculate that it's wider than most of the Ivies even. Yeah. Yeah. They've had some controversy around tenuring an Asian American woman in the English department. It is an Ivy League school, but with, you know, 
with the complex. Well, you know, well, well, but, but also like that, that, you know, size wise in terms of, uh, you know, and, and my partner went to Brown. So she sort of, you know, Pembroke, of course, they, they had to make sure people know that they're not referring to Brown because there is a Pembroke center at Brown, et cetera, et cetera, right. et cetera. The way they decided to frame the central conflict in the show around cancel culture really set the stage for the size of school and type of school they ultimately chose to represent. And that's something that, as everyone is right to point out, more closely resembles as a small liberal arts college or an elite liberal arts college, right? In part because so much of the cancel culture debate has erupted in these settings and has been student-driven in these settings. And I think it does also a disservice to, to just call it cancel culture. Yeah. But that is a, a useful shorthand because everyone recognizes it. But there has been a lot of student activism and agitation, especially at small liberal arts college, around important social issues that they feel very much need to be addressed by departments that are often impervious to the more pressing politi- political concerns that occupy their students. I do think that it was trying to strike that note. I think that it had to invoke the Ivy League so that your layperson watching it might not confuse it with, let's say, the University of Wisconsin, like a giant like and venerable mm-hmm. public institution, or Michigan or UCLA and Berkeley or any of these other mm-hmm. kind of large flagship public schools, because structurally, architecturally, those experiences are very different. Yeah. Neither is it quite the nouveau corporate universities, including NYU or USC, where I work, <laughs> that actually in their own ways invoke or cite the architectures, traditions, and, you know, sensibilities of some Ivy League schools in their ascendance to do various things, make a splash on the US News and World Report, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Right. But I do think that it's imports some of those problems that the quote unquote neoliberal university experiences. And especially around the issues of endowment management, PR management, etc. Not that the the venerable older schools and Ivy League schools don't worry about those same things, but I think it's kind of amplified sometimes in schools that have had their ascendance in more recent decades. All to say it is an amalgam, it, which is what, you know, the friends apartment is, <laughs> you know, uh, nobody, right. nobody could afford that apartment in New yeah. York City. Not one of them could afford an apartment that huge in New York City. Yeah. Rachel is a quote unquote chef. I keep using this example, but we never see her working with line cooks. We don't know what kind of restaurant she works in. She just represents chef mm-hmm. or to say, incidentally, all of the folks who played professors in those like ensemble comedies in the past, like Ted Mosby and How I Met Your Mother, or even Ross on Friends, uh, ostensibly mm-hmm. teaching at places like NYU or what have you. That's a very different representation of academia, but all to say TV has to function with these shorthands and by citing existing aspects of the cultural imagination so that people can orient themselves. And, you know, I know that it can be blunt and it's not always the most subtle thing. That's one of the things that can be frustrating about the show is sort of like trying to locate where it is, but also we should interrogate our desire to locate exactly where it is. Because I think like, again, that's like tied to 
I want it to be about me or I want it to be about us or about it to be about my particular experience, but actually it is a mishmash of those things. I love that you're identifying this as specifically a sitcom. The the example of Friends is such an interesting one in my thinking because Friends comes out at this sort of peak of American, you know, post-war decadence. Okay. And and all of the the sitcoms always sort of reflect the culture of their times in very transparent ways. And and Friends gives us this fantasy of the end of history, right? <laughs> that this is this is our our realization of a kind of ideal social landscape in which these young people are going to have whatever they want. That they just can pursue whatever dream, and their their career is always going to be secondary to this sort of happiness and stability. Right, that this post-history uh, landscape offers them, and then as we move into the 21st century, and that you know the, <laughs> that dream is real, realized as as elusive, right? We move into workspaces, right? And the sitcom it moves into workspaces, into you know the office and Parks and Rec and Superstore, and and to to look at the chair in those terms, I think reveals a lot about it. Mm-hmm. You know, Ji Yoon is really struggling with work-life balance, and she is is struggling as many academics do, but also with many people do, with defining herself largely by her job, and having you know made incredible sacrifices in the name of that job, which is nonetheless not rewarding her in the ways that you know maybe she thinks it should, and is a source of ever-growing stress. And reaching a kind of middle age where she wants something else to be part of her daughter's life and to to realize that striving for success in academia has stolen from her. And I think that that thinking of it in those sort of sitcom terms, I think, is really helpful for seeing what this show is in conversation. Yeah, um, my colleague in the cinema school and in his and she's joined upon it in cinema and history, Laura Isabel Serna posted about this on Twitter and said that the thing that she identifies most with in the chair is precisely that negotiation of time of being away from home with negotiating the resentment from one's daughter and, and all of those interpersonal things, less so perhaps some of the workplace stuff that isn't about her particular and very, very specific experience in those departments and in her roles in those departments, but, but more about just like the general structural conditions that workplace comedies use humor and exaggeration and broadness to help underscore for us. So I imagine that Superstore, you know, gets some things absolutely dead ass right about working in a big box shop or about the kind of contradictions that come when there's talk of unionization. Right. Yeah. But what they're trying to do is really draw attention to some of these other issues by you know, creating an atmosphere of humor, absurdism, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's satire, right? Literature professors should know how that works. It's striking to me how much the collective aesthetic unconscious that unleashed itself from academics online saying, well, it should be something like the wire that gets at these structural like conditions in this serious and intensive way, like an expose. And I was like, that's completely 
on the opposite side of the spectrum from what the show set out to do and what it was trying to do. It's not to privilege intentionality to say that, but it is to understand, again, genre, form, structure, the means of production. Right. And I invite right. all of my, all of my colleagues, all of my uh, compatriots out there to brush up on their cultural studies just to remember that this is how sometimes we read, encounter, and interpret popular culture. <laughs> What's the half-hour NBC sitcom about? Uh, set in a police precinct? Oh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Brooklyn, like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, that's the analog, not the wire, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or something like Rutherford Falls, one of the new shows that's out on Peacock, or you know, something like that. Coming back to that question of the sort of way it represents work-life life balance, I mean, this is one of the things that makes the relationship between Bill and Ji-Yoon like so infuriating and, and also genuinely rich is he acts like a reckless boob mm. and ends up getting put on at leave. And, and by being put on leave, he ends up getting to spend hours and hours every day with her daughter and developing this relationship that leads to tension between her daughter and her. Right? And that Meanwhile, she's trying to save his job, in part because she sees that as her job and she takes her job seriously. For me, one of the real challenges of this show was that Jay Duplass gives an incredible performance and is one of the sources of consistent comedy. And yet he feels absolutely irredeemable to me. And yet, in part, because it's the kind of show it is, right, you can't really have an irredeemable central character on a sitcom. So he, you know, he sort of gets a redemption arc that bothered me. What do we make of this, this character and the way in which he sort of gets rewarded? Maybe that's the realist element here, right, is you know, the irresponsible white guy gets rewarded. The woman of color who, you know, tries to work on his behalf and sacrifices herself ends up losing her position of power, right? But, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and that is the sharp contrast, right? He was chair before and, and I guess mm-hmm. apparently either he wasn't particularly good at his job or he just let things get to the point where she's now there to try to do the work that he maybe neglected for years. Right. The the line about the ticking time bomb, they want it to go off in the hands of a woman is like, that's, that's sort of powerful and yeah. incisive. Yeah. And I do think that the redemption, I, I don't know that it's that redemptive an arc. <laughs> Bill would think it was redemption for him to have stuck to his guns and righteously be unemployed and unsure of what his future is. It's it's to romanticize that outcome again, but it's just sort of like, I think that for Ji Yun, again, it's a different set of outcomes. One that understands not to romanticize what mm-hmm. Bill has opted to do. And this is where another kind of major lack in the show that people have commented on adjunctification is something that I imagine mm-hmm. could return if, and I don't think they will, pursue a second season where Bill is faced with having to figure out how to earn earn money to pick cash up, having to take visiting gigs, having to do things, having to experience aspects of the profession that his golden boydom has sort of Mm -hmm. like not challenged him at all to do. Being an adjunct, being a temporary worker, you know, teaching per class, getting paid per class, that kind of thing. 
tutoring. Tutoring, yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah. we, you know, if, if if they were savvy about doing a follow up season, which again, I'm not sure this was written to be followed up uh, as a right. multi season thing. I don't see Sandra O oh coming back for it I, yeah. I, for some reason. It feels like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. With the character, we don't know what the, that character would necessarily do. I think that it sort of ends in a place where there's, yes, some uncertainty about a couple of the characters' future, but we know she's still a faculty member in that department. Mm-hmm. She has tenure. We know she has security. But where, where Bill's, I suppose, righteousness, his new put-uponness, has material consequences that then they can engage or deal with. Assuming that the, the, the idea is to hold on to this niche audience, right? That would resonate with that audience in really interesting ways, which, I mean, it leads kind of naturally into the, the another question I wanted to ask, which is about how this show represents teaching. I found that was one of the things that I found most interesting. And I could tell that the writers were familiar with at least some sort of baseline pedagogical theory. I mean, I never really thought I was going to hear the phrase reversing the classroom in, in, a, in a mainstream scripted show. You rightly point out that the scene that, that is kind of overdetermined, right, is where, uh, you know, Yaz is bopping along to uh, the feminist Moby Dick rap <laughs> and Elliot is turning purple with rage in the back of the room. And that's, it's really important to the, the, the plot line. That that seemed, like you said, that that's where we were getting into the, oh, captain, my captain, you know, stuff. But a lot of the other scenes I thought were really interesting in the way that they represented the classroom dynamics, right? You have Elliot reading his notes from behind a podium. You've got Bill more active, but still maintaining the authority position in the front of the classroom. He doesn't exactly have a script, but he knows what students are going to say to his questions. And whereas, yeah, as is pictured walking amongst them, sitting with them, you know, decentering the classroom. And Jiyun, I think really interestingly, is shown in a range of different sort of classroom arrangements, both centered and decentered. And so it's evident that Pete and Wyman were thinking about that, but they also raised this question, you know, does the incentive to maintain enrollment mean that we're catering to some kind of lowest common denominator of pedagogy edutainment, right? I, I found those scenes really interesting and thoughtful about how, how to represent the sort of range of classroom dynamics that you do have, even within an English department. I honestly don't think the show comes down on one side or the other and that it waffles that. I think it really, you know, um, is ambivalent about that argument. And Mm -hmm. I sort of wish that it were a little bit stronger uh, Mm -hmm. about critiquing the kind of more canonical lecture formats, some that I grew up with, but some that I truly enjoyed as an undergraduate. I loved watching my Shakespeare professor, Michael Allen, lecturing in a dynamic and, you know, kind of wild British way and and all these different things. Like that's the kind of stuff that I'd been conditioned actually by my consumption of cultural media and the Dead Poets Society and other things to expect in the classroom. So I do think, you know, that what, it points out for us is, and and what the discomfort I think is in, in viewing some of these scenes for scholars, for professors, people who teach, is it brings back into our minds, at least for me, what it feels like to 
imagine yourself teaching and then to end up performing that thing that you imagine teaching in a college classroom would be that that it is a negotiation that it is a performance that it is a constant sort of sense of well how are you going to literally position yourself and figure yourself Mm -hmm. out in relation to this classroom it's still something that after 16 years i've you know certainly haven't entirely figured out because students have really disparate desires, obviously. Some really want you to be the font of inspiration. I once got a teaching evaluation that they got mad at me in a large lecture format course for consulting notes. (laughs) It's just like, I don't know why the professor had to consult notes. I was just like, so would you rather that I know that there are certain details that I get wrong or aren't wrong. I'm not precise yeah. about because I don't have notes. So then I actually experimented with just not using notes. And honestly, my evalu- my evaluations did go up, even though sometimes I was like, well, you know, did I give them the right date for that? Yeah. All to say, mm-hmm. you know, the show itself doesn't take a stance on those scenes of teaching. I think that what it does is that it mutes sometimes some of those and, and, and parodies, let's say the soaring, uh, Barbara Streisand lecture in a mirror has to in the mirror has two faces. Her lecture on courtly love, and the kind mm-hmm. of uh, the, again the sort of halcyonic vision of how students are fist pumping when she mentions Puccini and and just so wrapped yeah. with attention, like all of these scenes that are one uh, one side or the other around that dynamic. Either this is absolutely inspirational or this is dreadfully dull and I'm not paying attention. And then of course, the third thing that you have represented is students being hypervigilant and somehow um, fueling the paranoia that they're recording everything we're saying in the classroom and one false move will end up on the internet, you know, and meme to death or something. So I do think, you know, it hedges its bets. That's, that's the phrase that I use. And, and so the scenes of teaching, I think it's sorting itself out. uh, It's sorting its own ideas out about what teaching is or should look like or means. And in that sense, the dis- disparateness with which we see scenes of teaching represented are pretty funny. And I think work because we don't spend too much time in the classroom either, which is often also where scholarly films and TV set in scholarly environments spend their time. One of the red herrings that really worked on me was that Jiyun keeps referring to how great Yaz is in the classroom and sort of holding her up as this incredible pedagogue. And Elliot just has to see you work, see how you are with students. Seems very delusional on her part that he will be, you know, overwhelmed by her pedagogy. I kept thinking, oh, the show is going to pay this off by us seeing Yaz in that sort of soaring lecture or in, you know, bringing something out of her students or doing doing some sort of extraordinary teaching labor. And we never get that payoff. On the one hand, I think that's very real because we never actually see the payoff of teaching, right? You never really have that moment in the classroom where you're like, well, I, you know, I fixed things today, right? Yeah. <laughs> like it's, all, it's, it's always whatever payoff it may have is down the road and private and, you know, the student, you know, the students remembering something or holding on to something or being shaped by something that you may never know, right? The show sort of holds that up and then doesn't, doesn't follow through on it. And that gives you the sense of like, just, just how tortured all of these professors are by not knowing whether what they're doing and what they're holding on to and what they value is actually the right thing. 
because the job just doesn't ever give us that answer. And no one will give us that validation. There's no one to, to offer that validation for us. Uh, None of the processes that are supposed to do that will do that. The tenure letter or comments or what have you aren't going to necessarily do that. Right. It's very impossible to get a win, a quote unquote win of any kind in this profession. Or one that is enduring and lasting or meaningful or that like where you feel, yeah, as you were saying, you know, yeah, I I left it all out on the floor today. You know, (laughs) even in those moments where you feel like you've given your most profound invictacy speech moments, you're like, and scene. And then there's just like dead silence or, or, you know, (laughs) and then maybe three years down the road, you get a a sweet email that says, I couldn't stop thinking about this or whatever, or what have you. I do appreciate that. It never truly shows a full, fully locked in student body enjoying and, right. you know, immersively enjoying everything. It's sure that one scene, um, I've, yeah, wasn't sure if it was supposed to be sincere or funny. And I think that like it plays better that way because if it were in one way, if it was meant to be just be funny, then that would be cruel and rude and very conservative. If it was meant to be sincere, then like an Aaron Sorkin. Yeah. Moment, then right? it's a yeah. little bit awkwardly sincere. Yeah. So I do think that right. it's, you know, maybe I'm projecting too much onto that is that, that it's not meant to be that it could be service for people who want that and who aren't going to think too hard about it, which is most everybody else who would watch the show other than academics. <laughs> right. Right. I think that the thing that's most annoying to me about the quote unquote discourse about this show is that as with everything, the folks who are just opt outers and who just like can't let everybody have fun. Mm -hmm. It's like when everyone was tweeting about Confefe and then at some point people got mad at people tweeting about Confefe (laughs) and it was, and we're just cranking us. It's like, let us have this joy. Let us have this moment. Yes. There are other more serious things, more pressing Mm -hmm. issues in academia for us to address and deal with, let alone the world. But this is one of those, you know, eruptions of joy and lightness, maybe some irritation. It's it's mysterious, perhaps a confefe moment, but let it be. Yeah. That's just something that I put out there. So it's like no one cares if you don't like it or don't want to watch it. Just let the people who are talking about it amongst themselves talk about it amongst themselves. Mute the word, move on, have a sense of humor. Don't fulfill the prophecy that academics are utterly humorous and unwilling to experience lightness in some way. And if anything, I feel like it's generated conversations about what what is our community, the people who are part of English departments in some way, shape or form, uh, whether that's as adjuncts or as tenure track faculty or as uh, students. What have we been? What are we now? What do we need to become to survive this sort of moment of neoliberal <laughs> neoliberalization of the university. Yeah. And I do think that it's really telling that people who have taken the time to give this show some thought or to even write about it beyond academia mm-hmm. are themselves scholars of color, often yeah. in departments like English departments um, mm-hmm. or kind of like those big yeah. 
anchor departments. To the the infinite credit of the producers, the show made an effort to amplify exactly those voices, right? Mm -hmm. However, however you read the actual representation on screen, the way in which they promoted the show, the people they sent the screeners to, the way in which the discourse has been shaped by web publications has been to amplify the voices of women of color. Credit to Amanda Peet and Julia Wyman and and even probably to Benioff and Weiss, right, for <laughs> for that. Yeah. I, I'd like to not acknowledge them at all as having you think you that's fine. This, but that's totally cool. That's totally cool. Well thanks for having me on the show, Matt. Yeah, I really appreciate it. It was great to talk to you, Karen. That was Karen Thompson. For more about her work and links to some of the materials we discussed, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash the chair. On the next episode of The American Vandal, I'll be talking to Michelle Chihara and Kyla Tompkins about the chair and about Dr. Tompkins' recent incendiary PMLA essay, The Shush. Until then, I'm Matt Siebel. Thanks for listening.